Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I grew up in a little town called El Campo, just southwest of Houston. My dad, Papa Hutt, graduated from Texas A&M University, which was quite a bit further north from where, where I grew up. He wasn't a particularly um, exuberant Aggie. You know, he didn't like, he didn't talk about it a lot, but he did teach us all the songs and all the yells and instilled in us a love for maroon. <laughs> and, and, uh, and we loved the Texas Aggies in our household. And I think I need a different mic, right? Okay. Turn this one off. So, um, as we got older, um, we realized that sometimes being a Texas Aggie was not so great. Uh, because you see, the Texas Aggies always lost at football. Always. Always. So after suffering the slings and arrows of being made fun of for being a Texas Aggie, I quickly learned that when the Aggies did win, I just needed to keep my mouth shut. I didn't need to brag about it, even though I was exuberant about the win. I just kept to myself because I knew that sooner or later the Aggies were going to start losing again and then I'd have to I'd know my fortunes had changed. And even today I, I still don't brag a lot except maybe to Stephanie when the Aggies win. Because it will always come back to bite you is all I have to say. Odd as it may seem, I think today's gospel lesson has something to teach us about pride and humility, or maybe a better word for that is hubris and humility. But it's probably not what you think. The reading for today begins with the words, Jesus told a parable. Well, you know, we've talked about parables before, and Jesus is told many of them in these days that we've been in ordinary time and he's moving toward Jerusalem and teaching his followers hoping beyond hope that they'll get it, that they'll snap to, they'll understand what he's trying to teach them. So oftentimes when uh, we hear parables for some of us um, the, we already know what they mean. Right? We were, if we grew up in the church and going to Sunday school or if we've been to church a lot, we, we've heard these parables. So we come to them with a sense that we know what the answer to the parable is, right? Interestingly, though, um, Jesus' stories, um, well, they are filled actually with mystery and the opportunity for us to wonder and to be awed. But because we already have what we think is the answer to the parable, the, 
ministry, uh, we often miss that. Uh, Jesus told these open-ended stories that invite us to struggle with their meaning and to see the world from unexpected perspectives. And maybe to get more than one answer to the parable. Biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine says, they are mysterious in that they challenge us to look into the hidden aspects of our own values, our own lives. They bring to the surface unasked questions, and they reveal the answers we have always known but refuse to acknowledge. Isn't that interesting? Diana Butler Bass states that many of us uh, are under the misimpression that the parables are like Nancy Drew, or perhaps the Hardy Boys, the mysteries, in that they bear one meaning, that there is a single solution to these gospel puzzles. But that's not quite right. Often we think we know, as I said, the meaning. And so if we are Christians, uh, the parables seem to us to have a secret knowledge that remains consistent or persistent. The persistent widow is always about faithfulness in prayer, right? We heard that last week. The parables about Pharisees are always about hypocrites. And when the rich are condemned, it is always a metaphor. <laughs> we make it a metaphor to get ourselves off the hook, right? Even the writer of Luke gets into this action. Because for almost every parable in Luke, the writer prefaces the story with what the writer wants you to draw as a conclusion. And then tells the parable as Jesus may have taught it, and then follows the parable with an explanation of what it meant. Okay? In almost all of Luke's parables, that's what we get. So we already are primed to see this in a particular way. Um, but what if that's not the case. What if the story, the parable, is really intended to be open-ended? We already know that the word parable has a meaning to come alongside. It means that the parable comes alongside us where we are. Jesus comes alongside us where we are. But this word parable also has a meaning that is to throw down or to throw away, meaning, I think, that we are to throw away our preconceived notions about the meaning of the story and just let it open up so we discover what is there. Oh, and by the way, what does the parable have to do with us today? <laughs> well, you can bet we know, even if we don't want to know, it has everything to do with us. Professor David Lose is keen to explain the situation of the parable as it plays out today. He rightly points out that we are just days away from an election that is more negative than any of us can recall. We are being barraged remorselessly by attack ads. And of course, the ads give us little idea, if any, what the candidates actually believe or want to enact or want to do, how they want to make the world different. 
Many are filled with untruths, misrepresenting the words or beliefs of their opponents. On both sides of the political aisle, on all the sides of the political aisle, it is becoming more and more a reality that after months of slashing each other, those who are elected will not be able to come to the table together to work for the common good. They will not be able to do it. Whoever wins in such a vitriolic context as we are in right now has already lost the larger and more important campaign for a better state, a better nation, and a better world. And this is not a problem unique to government. Lose points out that in our churches, our schools, and businesses, liberals divide the world into the just and the unjust, conservatives into the pure and the immoral. So how are we to go forward with all of this? I mean, we individual, individually aren't exempt from this. We divide people into categories, neat categories. We demand to be right rather than reach out to those with whom we disagree. We right at all cost, right? I read about a group of people this week that really, it stunned me. They're going into neighborhoods that hold different political views than they hold. And they are looking at who lives where. And they're seeking to engage them in conversation on the topic of a woman's right to choose. You can imagine they have some doors slammed in their faces. But more often, they are engaging people in conversation. And they're not telling people what's right and what's wrong. They're listening. They're listening to what people have to say. They're hearing their hurt and their grief and their fear. And if they can, and if it works, they share some information. But they don't judge, and they don't try to win arguments. I find that fascinating. It's called deep canvassing, to listen carefully to what people have to say. All too often, it would seem our moral geography is no less rigid than that of the Pharisee, right? But perhaps this is the point of the parable. If we take an honest look at our everyday life, our families, religion, and civic life, we realize that when we judge this Pharisee for his self-righteousness, we have fallen prey to it. When we judge the Pharisee who says, Lord, I thank you that I, I am not like this tax collector, which is what the writer seems in Luke seems to want us to come to the conclusion of, um, that we are in the midst of that ourselves. I mean, we fall into that trap. And, and listen to how Luke starts the, the reading for today. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Luke is already setting it up for us to believe that all those who are there are feeling pretty righteous about their lives, not just this Pharisee. And I want to remind you about the Pharisee. The Pharisee was faithful, went to synagogue, fulfilled the role as a leader of the church, said, uh, you know, I, I give a tenth of everything I earn. I give away a tenth of everything I earn. I, I pray. I fast. This is not a bad person. In fact, 
many of us would fall into this category, right? That we're faithful, we come to church, we pray, we give to the church and to other organizations that need our support. We, we do, all, I don't know about the fasting part, but I do know that we, we do a lot of this, right? And Luke seems to think that Jesus is trying to point us toward this tax collector so that we too will know that our only hope is in God who seeks out the lost, right? Who rejoices at the repentance of anybody who feels themselves a sinner, who causes light to shine from the darkness and who raises the dead to life. If this is true, then maybe we can look differently at our neighbors even and especially those with whom we disagree, rather than judging them and calling them Pharisees. Maybe we can have generous hearts and recognize people or fellow pilgrims in this life whom Jesus loves. So if you read the scriptures carefully, you discover that all of us, every last one of us, every bag among us, is... Uh, is as the psalmist says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what are we that you are mindful of us, mortals that you care for us, yet you have made us a little lower than you, O God, and crowned us with glory and honor. This isn't said to one person or one group of people. This is said to the whole of creation. But equally, the psalmist tells us in prayers to God, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely everyone stands as a mere breath. We are both gifted and also fall short. We are great and we are small. We are all of and all, every last one of us, is all of this, which is important to remember as we look at this parable. Years ago, uh, I was reading something about humility, and uh, I remember being stunned by what the quote was, and I don't even know who said it, but I have remembered it for years, that humility is not about thinking less of yourself, but not thinking of yourself at all. Whoa. And Rohr, Richard Rohr, Father Richard Rohr, tells us that the only way to humility is through honesty with oneself and before God. And sometimes the mirror gets held up to us in ways we don't expect. That, um, that we live in this tender balance celebrating our lives and the good in us and what we do well and being proud of all of this. And then the tension of what does it really mean to be a person of humility? And how do I do that effectively without being overly pious? Well, like I said, the mirror gets held up. I was going to stop my sermon there, but I'm going to tell you something. 
yesterday I attended the fall meeting of the North Texas Association of the United Church of Christ. <clears throat> I'm chair of what's called the Committee on Ministry, and we screen people who are seeking to be uh, considered for authorization for ministry. So somebody may want to be ordained, or they may want to be a licensed minister, or they might want to be a commissioned minister, and we, we interview and talk with all those people and review their resumes and read their papers that they write to come to this point. So yesterday we had two stellar candidates for ordination. They were very different from each other, and yet they were both amazing. And I was so excited, but I barely got in the door of the church, and one of the people uh, who was there to participate in the meeting cornered me. I barely got my lunch paid for, and, and they cornered me and wanted to know about the, one of the candidates and called into question for qualifications. Well, needless to say, I just puffed up like a blowfish. I got angry, and I took it all personally, how dare they question the work of this committee? We have worked hard. We have volunteered our time. We have done our work well. The person who cornered me at the meeting, however, allowed me to explain the work of our committee and why we had chosen to recommend this person for candidacy as an ordained clergy. The other person who cornered me did it the night before online at 10 o'clock. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. It was the same concern. This person had been gone for the church for a while, and what were we doing recommending them for ordination? Oh, my word. So when I got to the meeting, I avoided him like the plague. Now, he has always been somebody who was tight with the rules. In fact, behind his back, Some of us referred to him as a Pharisee. So glad I am not like him. The whole drive over to Fort Worth, I had fumed about him. And I was so glad I was not like him. I practiced aloud in my car what I was going to say if I had to talk to him. And it wasn't all that nice, I want to add. Our paths never crossed because I was really good at my avoidance techniques so I wasn't confronted well as it turns out both our candidates were approved for ordination unanimously and resoundingly and there was no contentious, contentious stuff happening well I have to say I was thrilled about that and I confess that I may have been a little smug that all had gone exactly as I had planned on the way to my car, I passed another car with people in it and waved before I saw who was in it, and it was him! It was that pastor and the people from his church. Well, I certainly wasn't moved to knock on the window and talk to him, but I did wonder if he thought I was gloating. Later in the evening, Stephanie and I sat and talked about the day, and I processed the meeting ad infinitum with Stephanie. I'm sure she was like, oh. um, <laughs> but
But as we talked, I remembered that years ago when I was going through among the most difficult times in my ministry, it was this pastor who, in several clergy meetings, heard my stories and understood my pain. He, more than any of the others, offered important insights about the people I was in conflict with and how to work through it. And he affirmed me and encouraged me. I don't know how much you like humble pie, but I don't like it all that much. But I had a big dose of it last night. And now the hard work of rebuilding the relationship begins. So what if? What if what we think and know, we know about the parable is not what it means at all? What if the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is not really all that much about hubris and humility, though that's certainly part of it? What if we were asked to see the hubris of the prayer of the Pharisee is really about a prayer that doesn't even include God? And so no relationship can come about. Then wouldn't we feel compassion for that Pharisee? And... What if the tax collector who enters into a relationship with God by being completely honest about who he is and where he's failed and seeking God's mercy, what, what if that's what we need to see? That God is a central part of his prayer, even though he's a sinner and steals from his people. And wonder of wonders. What if the story is really about how God loves them both? The self-absorbed Pharisee and the tax collector who sins against his own people. So it turns out the good news revealed in Jesus' parable is that God loves the rule keeper as much as God loves the humble sinner. That's good news for us today, right? Amen.